Today, 2 Kings, uh, the, the reign of King Josiah. Last week, we saw the reign of King Hezekiah in chapters, I think, 18 to 20. Um, and yeah, this week we're going to pick up, uh, not with Hezekiah, Josiah's not Hezekiah's kid, but he's his great-grandson. And so um, Hezekiah followed the Lord, trusted the Lord, prayed to the Lord. The Lord delivered Hezekiah from persecution and danger and sickness. Hezekiah had some issues toward the end of his life. Um, he kind of, you know, maybe kind of got a little bit self-centered toward the end of his life. But for the most part, Hezekiah was a good king and a godly king. Um, in chapter 20, Hezekiah dies and he's succeeded by his son Manasseh. We're going to look briefly at the reign of Manasseh and Ammon um, in chapter 21. And then we're going to get into the life of, of Josiah. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to work through these three chapters of the book of Second Kings. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to sit under your word and listen to it together and gather around it. And um, Lord, we pray as we listen to your word that you would speak to us. We pray that you would bless these next few minutes. We pray that you would quiet our hearts. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see you and, and be affected by your glory and by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's start in chapter 21, verse 1. You can find it on page 305 if you're using a pew Bible. Um, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nation's from whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, all of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. Uh, in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. Skip down to verse 9. It says, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Manasseh is a bad king. He's a bad guy. He's a bad king, worships idols. His, his father, Hezekiah, was a good king and a godly man and was faithful. And, Hez and, and Manasseh was, I mean, you almost, Hezekiah was, was arguably one of the best kings that there was in the entire, um, in the entire kind of history of Israel's kings, of Judah's kings. And Manasseh was arguably the worst king in the entire history of, of Judah's kings. And so, you know, there's, there's an interesting dynamic that we see in Scripture um, pertaining to uh, generations and how each generation affects the ones that come after it, right? A lot of times in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you see godly people, godly men and women, mothers, fathers, who have kids who grow up to be godly. And that uh, should encourage us. Or, or we see wicked, people who are wicked, who have kids who grow up to be wicked. And so that we should kind of read that and internalize it and think, okay, uh, that speaks to how important... The family structure is, that speaks to how important uh, godliness is for spouses and for parents, how important it is to have a father and a mother who love God and love one another and love their kids. 
and to raise them to love the Lord. All of that's vitally uh, important. We can kind of see that when we look at kind of the generational patterns that are passed on from one generation to the, the next, right? Children learn things from their parents. Children catch things from their parents. And so if you're married and have kids, and not everyone has to do that, but if, you, if that's you, then being a godly spouse and being a godly parent is arguably the most important thing you could ever give to your kids. It's the most important thing you could ever do with your life. So that's all true. We can see that from Scripture. We can see that from the generational patterns that we see working themselves out in Scripture. But sometimes, like this text right here, there are godly men and women who have bad kids, who have kids who are wicked. And that's a reality that we see in Scripture as well. And that goes to show us that as important as godly parenting is, and as important as it is for, uh, you know, yeah, spouses to love one another and to love their kids and to raise their kids to love the Lord, all of that is vastly important. But the fact of the matter is, you are not sovereign over your child if you're a parent. You're not sovereign over their future. You're not sovereign over their soul. God is. And so, be as good of a spouse as you can in view of the reality that Christian parenting, be as good of a spouse and as good of a parent as you can in view of the fact that um, that has a profound, invaluable impact on your child. And recognize that you're not God, God is, and so devote your children, you know, pray for your kids, pray that God would take care of your kids. We have, to, we have to, you know, all of the good parenting that we can summon, that we could kind of manufacture from within ourselves is not going to ensure that our kids are going to walk with the Lord. We have to pray for them, we have to trust God, and we have to entrust our children to the, the Lord. So, Hezekiah was a good king, Manasseh is a bad king. Look at verse 10. It says, The Lord said by his servants, Because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done more evil than the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies, and they shall become prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with blood. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so Manasseh is a bad king, and he's causing the people to fall into sin. And God says, because of Manasseh's sin, and because of the sin of the people of the nation of Judah, judgment is, is coming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out my measuring tape, and I'm going to start measuring and making plans for how to go about demolishing and decimating and destroying the, the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah because of their pride, their unrepentant pride. In chapter, uh, in, in chapter 21, verse 19 um, and following, Manasseh dies and his son Ammon takes his place. And Ammon is a bad king just like Manasseh was. Eventually, Ammon's servants conspire together to kill him, and they install his son Josiah uh, in his place. And so we'll pick up in chapter 22, verse 1. 
It says Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So Messiah was a ba- or Manasseh was a bad king. Ammon was a bad king. Josiah is a good king. He, uh, sorry, so it's possible to break the cycle. Josiah was a good king where his father and grandfather were not. Josiah loves the Lord cares about the Lord, seeks the Lord. Verse 3, uh, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight over the house of the Lord, and let them give to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So one of the first things that Josiah does to kind of uh, represent his uh, dedication to the Lord and his kind of turning the nation back to following the Lord is to renovate the temple. The temple's in shambles. It's gone into disrepair from decades of uh, Manasseh and Ammon not following the Lord, not prioritizing the temple and worshiping God there. No one is reading God's word. No one is worshiping God. No one is offering sacrifices to God. So Josiah sees all that and says, let's address it. Let's, let's allocate resources to it to fix the, the temple. <clears throat> Verse 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, look what I found. I found a book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and we've delivered it into the hand of the workmen. And then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So, the house of God, right, not only has the, the house of the Lord, the temple, been neglected for decades, but the word of the Lord has been forgotten, it's been lost, it's been disregarded, it's been ignored, it's, uh, you know... I mean, if, imagine, imagine, you know, I or, or a, a, some future pastor of this church just fell off the map entirely and came in and said, we're not going to read from the Bible anymore. We're not going to preach sermons from the Bible anymore. Everything that I say is going to be based on what I think and what I feel, but not what the Bible says. And then that just goes on for decades. So, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, no one reads from the Bible in church. And then... One day someone's cleaning the church, painting the walls. They go into the supply closet to get a mop, and they find a dusty old Bible that hasn't been opened in 50 years. And they say, what is this? That's kind of what has happened uh, here. Manasseh, uh, very quickly, very promptly upon his reign, de-emphasized the word of God and worshipped other gods instead of God. And then his reign lasted for 50 plus years. And so now this is the first time that the word of the Lord, that the book of the law has been seen interacted with or read from in decades. And Josiah, when he hears about it, when he is exposed to it, when it's brought to him, he wants to hear it. He recognizes that this is the most important thing that he can can do is listen to the word of of God. The, The sovereign, eternal God of the universe has spoken. He has given us his word. He's told us who he is. He's told us who we are. He's told us how he wants us to live. 
He's told us how to be reconciled to him. He's told us how to live in right relationship with him. He's told Josiah how to be a godly king. He's told the people of Judah how to be godly citizens, right? God has spoken to us. And so the most important thing that we can do is listen and, and obey. Friends, um, Josiah here represents kind of a, something that we should all aspire to, which is uh, caring about and, and eagerly desiring to listen to and to sit under and to, to be exposed to and to learn from the, the Word of God. It's a vastly different time in redemptive history at this point. The Word of God is not readily available to Josiah and others like it is to us today. There were no copies of it. People didn't own them and have them in their homes. Right? The one place that you were supposed to be able to go and see God's word and read God's word and hear from God's word and discuss God's word and be affected by God's word was the temple. And that's the one place where there was no copy. And so it was literally, for decades, it was a famine of the, the word of God. And as soon as Josiah is exposed to, as soon as he uh, you know, has access to the word of God, the first thing he wants to do is read it and listen to it and sit under it and, and um, be impacted by it and be affected by it. So compare the, 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 the climate. Compare the, the, uh, how readily accessible the Word of God was in Josiah's time when it wasn't at all with how it is in our day where we have dozens of Bibles, all different translations, you know, study Bibles, children's Bibles, you know, you go on apps on your phone, websites, every translation that you could possibly. Uh, and we're like, we, we, we live in a time with an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the Word of God and how accessible it is to us. And so when we read about Josiah, it kind of raises the question, do we care? Do we care about the Word of God like Josiah did? Do we appreciate the Word of God like Josiah did? Do we want to hear from the Word of God like Josiah did? Someone who had virtually no access to God's Word manages to get it and sit under it, and then we have unlimited access to God's Word. And yet, how many of us take it for granted, spending far less time listening to the Word of God than we should? Or spending far more time wasting it on other things than we than we should. So, the call this morning is to let, let's let's be like Josiah. Let's let's listen to God's word. Let's respond uh, appropriately to it. Right? Let, I mean, if you don't read your Bible during the week, let me just challenge you to to do that this week. It's not hard. Just you know, spend five minutes each morning reading your Bible. If you don't know what to read, then you can just read this same text that we're reading from this morning. Right? You can, the way I do it is I'll spend the, the three days after Sunday rereading the text that I just heard that Sunday or that was just preached that Sunday to let it kind of continue to sink in and affect me. And then I'll spend the, the next three days, the, the first three before the following Sunday, reading the text that's going to be preached that Sunday. So at any given point in my week, I'm either 
revisiting the sermon that I just heard or revisiting what we just you know, heard from or anticipating and preparing for what we are about to, about to hear. But however you want to read your Bible, you know, you can kind of, there, there's, there's liberty there. But I would encourage you and I would even challenge you to be like Josiah and prioritize listening to and sitting under the, the word of God that we have been, we have the gift of, of having in our possession. <clears throat> Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and of the people for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. And so, after hearing the words of God, Josiah says, man, we are in trouble. All of the things that it says not to do are all the things we've been doing. All of the things that it tells us to do are all of the things that we've been neglecting. So let's go hear from a prophet from God uh, about how we should proceed, or a prophetess more, more, uh, more accurately in verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest and all those guys, uh, they went to... <clears throat> they went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants than all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me and made offerings of other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should come, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and weeped before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So, same thing that the prophets uh, said in, um, uh, in Manasseh's day, that judgment is coming, that disaster is coming, but there's kind of a glimmer of hope, or there's at least uh, some, you know, uh, glimmer of, of grace, that he says it's not going to come during the lifetime of King Josiah because he's a godly king. So, so Josiah personally will be spared from the captivity that's coming, the judgment that's coming, but the nation will, will not. In chapter 23, verse 1, the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So Josiah says, it's not just enough for me to hear the word of God. It's not just for, enough for me to hear the law of the God. I want all of the the, the leaders, all of the people in Judah and, and Jerusalem, I want them to hear. Come in here. Let's listen to the word of God together. 
And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So they come together, they renew their commitment to the Lord, they renew their covenant to walk with the Lord and to obey him. Verse 4, And then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple all the vessels that were made for Baal and Asherah and for all the host of heaven, and he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. So what we're going to see in the, the, these verses and the one that's, ones that follow is this wide-scale purge of idolatry, statues of idols, altars to idols, you know, priests and, and people who facilitate the worship of It's going to be reminiscent of what we saw from King Jehu uh, in 2 Kings uh, chapters 9 and 10, right? Just this like wide-scale, per- pervasive, comprehensive, you know, I mean, he doesn't just destroy the, I mean, he doesn't just destroy these, these, um, I- these idols on these altars here. He burns them and then he like, FedExes their ashes out of the like get get them out of here. I don't want any I don't want any you know semblance of idol worship to be left here in the city of God in the the temple of God. Verse five. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had orta- ordained to make offerings in the high places and in the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those who also burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. So anyone who worshipped idols, any false priests. Anyone who had administered sacrifices to false gods, you're all fired. We don't want to do this anymore. We don't worship idols. We don't have state-sponsored idol worship anymore. Verse 6. And he brought, out from Asherah, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. So it takes the statue of the idol out of the temple, burns it, and then he scatters the dust of it on uh, graves, thereby rendering it uh, untouchable, right? You weren't allowed to touch dead bodies or graves. You weren't allowed to touch anything that had recently touched dead bodies or graves. It was kind of uh, defiled. And so he's basically saying, destroy the altar, destroy the statue, burn it, and then defile it and render it completely untouchable forever. Like that's how, those are the lengths that I want to go to make sure that that idol worship is eradicated and cannot come back into our nation. Verse 7, he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests of the cities of Judah and he defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. So the priests are out, the altars are destroyed. <clears throat> Verse 8, he broke down the high places of, of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of, of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the left when one at the gate of the city. Verse 9, however, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their, their brothers. And so they're like, eh, we don't want to go. Man, Josiah is doing some crazy stuff. We want to kind of keep our, keep our distance. Verse 10, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses 
that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the, Lord, of the house of the Lord by the chamber Nathan-Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the son of fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber, right? Just, you know, more and more paraphernalia that was used to worship gods other than the one true God. Uh, verse 12, he pulled down and broke into pieces and cast them to dust in the brook Hidron. Verse 13, and the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. So he's destroying anything and everything that's related to idol worship. And then he's taking dead men's bones and putting them on it to basically say, don't touch this. Don't come here. This is defiled. You are not allowed to touch it. We're not going to reinstate this ever. Verse 15, moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place that was erected by Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and he burned it and he reduced it to dust and he burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mount and he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar, thereby defiling it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God had proclaimed who had predicted these, these things. So now, so he's, he's already you know, burned uh, idol paraphernalia and, and kind of sprinkled the ashes on graves and graveyards and dead men. Now he's getting bones out of graves and he's burning them on altars just to, just to really, you know, reiterate as much as he can that we are not going to, right, we're, we're not only destroying these, but we're going to defile them and we're never going to, to come back to them. Verse 17, then he sees um, the, he sees the, the bones that the man of God had proclaimed. And he says, what's that monument that I see? And the men of the city said, oh, that's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. So that is a callback to First Kings 13. I'm going to write that in your margin if you want. Um, but basically there's a, a prophet, we don't know his name, but there's a prophet in First Kings 13. And he comes and he says, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, and his name will be Josiah. And he shall sacrifice on the altar the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and the human bones shall be burned on you. Behold, the altar shall be turned down and the, torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. So this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that we saw in 1 Kings 13, that this would happen. And so Josiah says, okay, don't touch his bones. Leave them where they are. They left his bones alone. Verse 19, Then Josiah removed all the shrines of all the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all that he had done in Bethel. So now, Josiah is kind of moving out of Judah, out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, up into Samaria, which is the, the region that had been resettled with foreigners, right? The, the people that were in Israel slash Samaria had been resettled into the Assyrian Empire and foreigners had been resettled to that region. And now Josiah is making his way up into that region and he's destroying idol-worshipping paraphernalia there as well. Let's see here. And verse 20, And then he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and he burned human bones on them and then he returned to Jerusalem. So 
He's destroying altars, destroying idols and statues, but he's also killed, like this is the death penalty for anyone in Judah or Samaria that was worshiping these false gods or, or that was promoting and kind of helping people to worship false gods. Presumably because he read that he was supposed to do that in God's word, right? In, in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses was very clear that false prophets are to be killed, uh, priests who offer sacrifices to false gods are to be killed. And so Josiah is doing what he heard and read the word of God was calling him to, to do. Which is an, an, another kind of point of application that we should make note of as we read through this text. Right, the first one was that Josiah cares about the word of God. He listens to the word of God. He reads the word of God, right? He craved, like when he was... When he was living without the word of God, he experienced a deficit in his being. And once he had it, he cared about it, and and it was a priority in his life to listen to it and to be affected by it. That's kind of point one. But point two is that when we read the word of God, as we listen to the word of God, it's going to make claims and it's going to make demands on your life. We're going to read commands in the word of God and then effectively be given a choice. Are we going to listen to it and obey it, or are we going to disregard it and ignore it, right? And so Josiah says, I'm, I'm not just going to hear the word of God. I'm not just going to listen to the word of God. I'm going to obey it, and I'm going to do it. And so altars come down, statues come down, tearing them down, smashing them to pieces, burning them up, right? Digging up bones and using them to defile these altars of false gods. Josiah hears God's word, and then in response to it, he will stop at nothing to purge the land of the idolatry that is prohibited in God's word. Which raises the question for us. When we read God's word, and when we see that it makes claims on us, and it makes demands on our lives, how do we respond? When we read God's word and it tells us how to treat others, it tells us how to treat our family, it tells us how to treat our employer or our employees, it tells us how to spend our time, it tells us how to spend our money, it tells us what kinds of things that we should, you know, consume and support, right? When, when the word of God makes claims and demands on your life, it's not enough just to read it like Josiah did in chapter 22. We also have to obey it like Josiah did in chapter 23. James chapter 1 says, If anyone is a hearer of the word of God but not a doer, that man that he's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror, but then as soon as he walks away, he forgets what he looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not being merely a hearer, but also a doer, that man will be blessed in his, in his doing. So, step one to kind of learn from Josiah is that we have to listen to the word of God, hear it, care about it, prioritize it. But step two is that as we do, we need to obey it 
And we need to repent of our sin and we need to follow what the word of the Lord is calling us to, to do. But it's not just purge the land of idolatry. That's what we've seen in verses 1 through 20. But it's then also replace that false counterfeit worship that has been taking place with true, real, prescribed worship of the Lord that he's told us to do, which is verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. So for a long time, we as a nation have neglected this particular command that God gave us, which is to every year regularly gather together and remember the grace of God Right? To, to eat lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs in an act of remembering how God has delivered us from the, the nation of Egypt. He's delivered us from, from captivity and slavery. And we, we eat and we drink and we remember how God has saved us and we celebrate the grace of God in our lives. That's what God's called us to do and we have not been doing it. And that ends now. We're going to start celebrating the Passover again. God's word calls Josiah to rid the land of idolatry, and he does. God's word calls Josiah to reinstate the practice of the Passover, and he does. God's word makes demands on our lives. Right? Just like God's word called Josiah to rid the land of idolatry, God's word calls us to rid our lives of indwelling sin and the besetting sins that we've allowed to coexist for far too long. Just like God's word commanded Josiah to reinstate the worship uh, of God through the Passover, God's word calls us to worship him, to remember the grace that he's given us, and to celebrate it in community with the family of God, right? Turn from sin, trust in Jesus, repent and believe, rid your life of rebellion, replace it with the worship of God. Verse 24, moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household of gods and the idols and all the abominations that were in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, uh, in the, house of the, the priest found in the house of the Lord. So idolatry is eradicated. Worship is established. It was the job of the king of Israel was to see to it that God's people worshipped him or at the very least had an opportunity to worship him and to see to it that they did not worship idols or at least that, that the worship of idols was discouraged. Verse 25, Before him, before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So Josiah is a good king, a godly king, a faithful king, like King David. Arguably, Josiah is arguably the best king that they ever had in all of, of Israel or all of Judah. But then look what happens in verse 26. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, which by his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. 
And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So even in spite of all of the good, godly things that Josiah did during his reign, purging the land of idolatry, reinstituting the Passover, leading the people into repentance and and worship and righteousness. In spite of all that, God's judgment still came. Sometimes even when you do the right thing, circumstances don't turn out the way that you want them to. We can learn from Josiah the importance of seeking God's glory and being faithful to God even in the midst of circumstances that are not what we would have wanted. And then in the end, verse 28, Josiah is killed by a foreign king. Now the rest of all the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh Necho king of Egypt went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates and King Josiah went out to meet him and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him and his servants carried his dead body home in a chariot from Megiddo and they brought him to Jerusalem and they buried him in his own tomb and the people of the land took Jehoahaz the son of Josiah and they anointed him and they made him king in his father's place as faithful as Josiah was He still experienced suffering. He still experienced persecution. And in the end, he was killed. So he's an example to us of persevering through suffering, persevering through persecution with zealous obedience and dedication to the the Lord. Josiah went through his entire reign as king knowing that great disaster was coming, right? Knowing, it had been told to him in a prophecy beforehand. So he went through that whole reign knowing disaster was coming, but he was faithful to listen to God's word and to respond to God's word and to fight against sin and to worship God with faithfulness. How do you respond to suffering and persecution in your life? How do you respond when it looks like disaster is inevitable? Josiah is meant to be a picture of godliness and faithfulness and perseverance and endurance even in the midst of... When you have an employer who's difficult or unfair, how do you respond? Are you tempted to be less helpful than you can be to to get back at them. If you have a friend or a family member that treats you poorly or makes bad choices that negatively impact you, are you tempted to retaliate, get revenge, hold a grudge? Or do you continue to love and serve and be faithful like Josiah was, right? We, We can't control what other people do, but we can um, control how we respond to suffering and persecution. Josiah listened to the word of God, and as he did, 
And as he realized that the word of God was calling him to repent, Josiah repented. He fought against sin and idolatry. And he worshiped God and he he remembered the grace of God. Through the Passover, he remembered uh, how God had saved them from their captivity and kind of and led the people to remember the reality of the grace of God together. And incidentally, the practice of the Passover in the Old Covenant eventually gives birth to the practice of the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant, and we do the exact same thing. We remember the grace of God. We remember, right, we don't remember how God has saved us, how God has delivered us from Egypt. We remember how God has saved us and delivered us from our sin. We, re, right, we don't, you know, have lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs to, to symbolize and to, to help us to remember how uh, the people of God left Egypt in haste in the middle of the night as Pharaoh, you know, told them to leave. But instead we, we break bread and we drink the, the wine, the juice, in this case, as a symbol of Jesus' broken body and Jesus' shed blood, right? We're not remembering the deliverance from Egypt. We're remembering Jesus dying on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and to secure forgiveness and salvation for anyone and everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you are a member of the, the body of Christ, we invite you to come celebrate communion with us, right? After I pray, musicians are going to come forward. Guys are going to be serving the elements right up here. Just come up down the middle, receive the elements, head back to your seats on the sides, and, and just take a moment and remember the grace of Christ. Take a moment to confess your sin to Jesus, knowing that he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. Take a moment to remember the grace that Jesus has given us. Take a moment to celebrate the reality that we have been reconciled to God, not, not because of our good works, but because of his goodness and his grace. If you're not a Christian, we would ask that you not take communion because the Bible teaches against it. It literally says that you'd be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And so instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ. We would invite you to trust in Jesus. We would invite you to place the weight of your salvation on his shoulders, knowing full well that he is willing and able to save you from your, from your sin. So we'd invite you to do that. And then we'd invite you to come talk with us and help us and let us help you, you know, let us help, help disciple you and, and walk in that newfound relationship with Christ. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to celebrate communion and, and sing together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that we have the privilege of hearing from you. Right? There were, were times in Israel's history where they didn't hear from the word of God for 50 years or more. And so we are grateful to be able to gather and listen to your word every week. And we pray, Lord, that as we listen to your word, we pray that we could respond by turning from our sin and by trusting in you and by worshiping you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.